Welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And I'm going to keep reminding you, uh, next Sunday will be the last Sunday I can do this reminding, um, that um, town meetings are coming up for St. Paul's next Sunday at 4, next Tuesday, not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday at 7. Um, no matter where you are in your level of involvement at St. Paul's, I hope you can register for one of these. Go to the St. Paul's website. It will be a webinar that will be originating from this space. Uh, Dr. Jeff McDonald will be giving us uh, indications about updates, responding to questions. And the important thing about this is that we are looking at what strategies and plans we will put in place to reopen the church at all levels, including Ordinary Life, for live uh, participation. So sign up for one of those. I uh, hope you will do that. We have a podcast. Mm -hmm. It's called In Between, and this week we got to sit down with one of our classmates, um, Adam Deloach, and have a conversation, which was fun. So thanks, Adam, for doing that. But you can find it on Apple Podcasts, on our website, and um, connect with us usually on Thursday mornings is when they get released. So it's been a fun, a fun way to just kind of try and keep something going. Our guest this coming week yeah. is going to be Dr. Jim Bankston. Yeah, that'll be good. I'm excited about that. Mm -hmm. To have uh, Jim's um, solid wisdom um, maybe reflecting on these days and this in-between time where we are as a country. Um, next week, we will resume using the Sermon on the Mount as a roadmap for how we go forward through this time of pandemic and distrust and hopefully reconciliation and, and healing. So um, I gave the title for next Sunday, What Does the Color 7 Smell Like? <laughs> It's a good one. You want to talk about donations? Yeah, sure. So if you, two things, if you have any requests for funds um, for nonprofits that you're engaged in and you attend this class, then you can find that request for donations on our website. It's on the constant contact that goes out to the class and um, fill it out and send it to me. All that information is on the form. And if you want to continue to make donations to our class, we have a donate button on every page of the website that re redirects you to another page through St. Paul's that when you contribute money, um, you just go down to the memo and put ordinary life. And the money that you guys have contributed, number one, is much appreciated, and number two, is well distributed. It goes towards nonprofits in and around the Houston area that are serving the poor and underserved and those who are underrepresented in our sort of system. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, it goes towards good purposes. So as always, I want to give thanks to the crew in this room that makes this possible, Tim Leatherwood, John Watson, Olivia Watson, and William Budge. And I want to say that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Glad to have you. So this time today is, as you might have anticipated, in response to the recent presidential election, 
It is not intended to be partisan, but it is intended to be a spiritual reflection on our entire political process and how we are involved in it. I hope you find this time comforting, and I hope you find this time challenging, no matter who you voted for. The title that we have given this time today is Holding Realism and Hope in our heads and our hearts, and I think in our heads because we have a lot of work to do. And I want to confess to you, um, admit maybe is a better title, that I've stolen this title from um, a sentence that I got from, from the travel writer Pico Aller. I'm not sure that calling him a travel writer is the right thing mm -hmm. to call him. He's more of a philosopher. Um, if you go on the internet and look for him, you will see him uh, with the Dalai Lama, with world leaders. Um, he's, he's a philosopher, but he said, I think that most of my writing is about putting hope and realism into the same sentence. I want to see the world as it really is, but I don't want to give up on a sense of possibility. And I think that's as good a summary of what our spiritual work can be about as I've read. You know that the heart of what I think it is to have a spiritual practice, both the practice itself and the content of that practice is being able to see what is with honesty and, and open eyes and deal with it. We have to see what is. And one of the things that this presidential election has revealed is that we are a deeply divided country. So seeing what is when it comes to matters of social justice, which we have been navigating the last two, four months now, has led us to say that we, like Jesus and like the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, we have to take sides. We take sides on behalf of those who don't have the power to have a voice. We take the sides of those who are dispossessed or who experience injustice in any way. We side with those who are the victims of injustice, evil, or oppression in whatever forms they appear. Those are our baptismal vows in the United Methodist Church. Hope is not the same as optimism. They are really different things. And being realistic, as in confronting what is, and being truthful about that has never been needed so much in our public life, nor in places of critical leadership like the presidential leadership we have had for the last four years. The fact that that truthfulness doesn't matter to at least half the voting population is a matter of real concern. So I want to also frame this time by three epigrams. Two are by very famous people, and one is by me. The first is by the Danish philosopher, theologian Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote, The greatest hazard of all, losing oneself, can occur very quietly in the world, as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly, any other loss, an arm, a leg, five dollars, a wife, etc., is sure to be noticed. 
I'm sure you're familiar with that uh, example of a frog put in a, a pot of tepid water and, and the frog, as the water heat is increased, does nothing to get out. Put a frog in a pot of hot water, jumps out immediately. But we have been immersed in a climate that has been anything but the values that are espoused by Jesus. The second epigram I want to use is by a psychiatrist uh, whose book, one of his books, <clears throat> was the first text assigned to me when I actually entered clinical training back in the 60s. I'm speaking of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, um, it was actually not in that book, but later in the interview, Viktor Frankl said, so let us be alert in two senses. Since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of. And since Hiroshima, we know what's at stake. So perhaps never have things been as potentially damaging uh, in the world as they have been right now. Um, I also uh, want to offer a line that I've begun to use when people ask me what ordinary life is all about, because that varies from time to time. And my response depends on what the circumstances are. Um, I say that ordinary life is about growing in our ability and capacity to embrace the fact that everything changes, that everything and everyone is connected. So pay attention. Now, until this past week, I had not met with my spiritual director since last February, right after our last our last, right after our last meeting, the pandemic hit and things got shut down and we began scrambling in ways that you can't imagine to keep things here uh, at St. Paul's going, to keep connected. Thank God for Holly Hudley, who's willing to put in long hours of work to sit here and share this time on Sundays. I shudder to think what would have happened had the pandemic hit us even three and a half or four years ago. I don't think we would have had the technology to do what we're doing right now and to stay as well connected as we have been to do the webinars. Uh, we didn't have that <clears throat> technical capacity here at St. Paul's. Anyway, I talk with my spiritual director about my grief over the loss. I, I grieve still the loss of what we had here on Sundays, the lively banter, the fun announcements, the sacred cookies, uh, magic tricks sometimes, um, community involvement. I talked about my anger, my anxiety about where it seemed we as a country are, especially since the murder of George Floyd. And um, I told her how excited I was, pure projection on my part, that um, it seemed that people were tired of a leadership, meaning a president, who didn't accept the science about the virus, who was all about self-dealing and nepotism, who was incompetent, who uh, was completely unqualified to serve, who had committed criminal acts, and who is clearly a racist, who foments division and violence, and who lies so much that it's way out of the ballpark to say, well, all politicians lie. I was uh, relieved to think the country would soon be behind us. And 
As the headlines in the newspaper say today, at least in the Houston Chronicle, quoting Joe Biden, it's a time for healing. But the election revealed that we're still a very divided country. Um, <clears throat> I think we have reason uh, to hope for a positive future. However, over 75% of white evangelicals voted for a person who has actively tried to undermine democracy and whose every word and deed has run counter to the teachings of Jesus. Now, no one knows what the time between now and January 20 is going to be like, but I think that we can say with confidence that we're going to enter a period of chaos and confusion. We have a lot of work to do going forward, and it's abundantly clear that a huge number of American Christians follow an ideology of nationalism instead of following Jesus. And I don't think it's partisan to say that. And I don't think that it's anything but intended to be healing to try to bring about a way to deal with this, to confront it in ways that can move us in the direction of more Christ-like character. Mm -hmm. Surely anything we say here is, um, you know, a little bit of projection and um, our reflection on events that have unfolded, that are unfolding, that will continue to unfold. But there's two word plays I'd like to start with. Um, one is belonging. Tracy Chapman, a, a wonderful singer and songwriter, gave expression to this yearning and sang, I want to wake up and know where I am going. I think so many folks feel this need to feel connected to a sense of place, the sense that the world is too much. Bell Hooks wrote that this too muchness creates a wilderness of spirit, an everyday anguish that shapes habits and continual searching. So belonging, <laughs> what can it mean? Literally, in the dictionary says, it means an affinity for a place or situation. And there are other meanings too, to go along with, properly relate to, to be the property of, or to be a member of. These, def these definitions seem wildly different to me. When I have a sense of belonging, like in the first definition of an affinity for a place or situation, I tend to feel free. Like I can show up as myself and even freely wrestle or have conflict without losing that sense of self. I certainly feel that with Josh, my husband, and my family, but I don't feel it everywhere. The second definition feels a little more restrictive to me, like to belong you have to go along with properly. I've never been very good at that. <laughs> the second word I want to play with is indigenous. Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, I love her definition of indigenous. She says, to become indigenous is to grow the circle of healing to include all creation. I want to stress the words healing and all. In many native cultures, indigeneity is not separate from reciprocity. So what I mean by that is the it, reciprocity is guided by the question, what is my responsibility here, instead of what is in this for me? This is the definition from the dictionary on indigenous, originating or occurring naturally in a particular place or native. It doesn't have a quality, it just says it's original to a place. So I've been wondering a lot lately about belonging and indigeneity. When we say we want to create a place where we all belong, who do we mean? Who are the we we are talking about? And who makes the rules? 
In the Christian language, I think this question is often asked as, who is your neighbor? And I would like to add to that question, when we say we love our neighbor, do we mean we love them socially and politically as well? Do we act on behalf of their highest and best interests, even when they cannot? So I'm grappling with these things. The image of America as a place where anyone can come and succeed is a myth of meritocracy that I think has been held, upheld for too long. It seems to be crumbling, and the meritocracy notion is often focused on individual success, personal liberties, and in religious terms, individual salvation. Perhaps it needs to crumble. The concept of individualism seems indigenous to modern American thought, but it does not fit what Robin Wall Kimmerer writes. There is, however, and to quote the poem that I read last week, a second melody, one lower, steady, perhaps more faithful, for being less heard. It is prevalent in the tradition of liberation theology, for example, which I think Jesus would have fit right into. And James Cone, black liberation theologist, wrote, the cross was God's critique of power, white power, with powerless love snatching victory out of defeat. Both the cross, and this is from his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and the, the title gives us exactly what it is that he's comparing. But he writes, both the cross and the lynching tree represented the worst in human beings, and at the same time, an unquenchable ontological thirst for life that refuses to let the worst determine our final meaning. Inasmuch as we want to occupy or maintain a seat of power, we cannot align ourselves with the cross. This moment then is both painful and hopeful. It's both death and rebirth. Liberation movements are always driven by folks who don't belong in the mainstream or who lack representation. If we are to believe the poll numbers, the overwhelming majority, roughly 80% of non-white voters are seeking liberation from the current le leadership. They did not go along with or properly relate to in order to belong, but came out in record numbers and made a statement that they want a different order. This is a community I would like to create, and yet I wrestle because more than, the ha more than half of the people in this country who look like me did not repudiate a man who does not seem to be in favor of growing this circle of belonging for, or healing for all. He seems more invested in fear than in love. I don't feel like I belong to that group that overwhelmingly voted for this picture of fear, and yet I am part of it. I am by skin color and ethnicity indigenous to it, but it does not feel healing to me. On the whole, I think it's white America that is split between two ideas of belonging. If we are choosing to doubt that the numbers in this election reveal a desire to uphold power or supremacy, even as we sit here and admonish it, then we're in a bit of denial. I don't know how to see this differently, and I'm sure there are those who see it differently than I do. I do know that I cannot define how anyone on the receiving end of inequity experiences it. As a member of the dominant group, I can't define for someone else, well, that's not racism, when someone experiences it as such. I can't define someone else's pain or anxiety about belonging. I must just listen and consider and nothing less. This week, a friend texted me, and she's being literal. This man has haunted my dreams. I worry about my husband going to the store or just to his job because his life could be taken from one of the humans incited by this presidency. Of course she wants freedom from that fear. Of course she does. 
So many, myself included, have felt anxious daily. While I don't think politics are the only vehicle for achieving the beloved community, I do see it as a tool or a framework that kind of guides or, or allows or suppresses it, meaning the beloved community. If I could imagine my ideal framework, it would create a safe structure for all beings, including non-human ones, to thrive and to heal. Even that I say I'm not shocked by the way the boats rolled down is in itself a little sad because some really shocking, terrible things have been enabled or incited in recent years. And I consider myself a hopeful, not apathetic person. I think that one of the worst outcomes of this election is to lure us all into a sense that we have put everything behind us. I have read, listened carefully to people that I respect uh, about the days leading up to this election, um, authorities, the people speaking from science and from political history. And I've heard some people use the phrase that we are having a moral crisis in this country. And I don't agree with that. I think that a crisis is very different from a disaster. And I think we have a moral disaster. I think that that, that disaster began to be exposed to more and more people um, with the death of George Floyd and other things that have come to light since then. Now, I don't know any way to talk about this desire, this disaster. I don't know how to talk about it in a way that doesn't risk coming across as partisan. Um, I want to be clear that I don't think that getting rid of Donald Trump has solved our problem. I think there is something in the country that I call Trumpism that is our problem, and it's not going to go away, not overnight. And it's not going to go away as long as people stand shouting at each other across backyard fences. I agree that Trump's done damage. Uh, he could do more. He is enabled by people in the Senate. He's enabled by influential people who are influential because they have a lot of money. He's uh, enabled by people who voted for him, uh, by the Hoogalans. Hoogalans? Hooligans? Hooligans. Hooligans. <laughs> I, I like can Hoogalans. say that <laughs> Who did things like run buses off the road in Texas and Pennsylvania. People who have embraced his racism, who shrugged off his lying, who endorsed his cruelty, um, and not been put off by the fact that he is a narrow, shallow, corrupt narcissist. And to continue on a path where these things are either ignored or embraced is to be out of alignment with the facts that matter. You know, the word disaster means to be out of alignment with the stars. And the facts are that if a person is involved in certain self-destructive habits, like smoking or using drugs or overeating, the consequences are not a crisis, they're disaster. And same is true for our, our country. Our failure as a country to come to terms with the rage and racism that has festered just beneath the surface, but which is now clear for all of us to see, 
is going to do us damage, irreparable damage, unless we all get involved to address the injustices caused by racism. It's as simple as that. Take the, we, the way we as a country have dealt with the COVID pandemic. Our collective behavior about this is senseless. I mean, it is, it's beyond comprehension. We've politicized something that should never have been politicized. And we are getting outcomes that are quite predictable when you politicize something like a pandemic. Experts were pointing to the inevitability of this virus for years, but that advice from the experts was ignored. We were actually working on a vaccine to deal with the inevitability of this, but that was stopped in 2016 because it was no longer seen to, seen to be as important as other policy matters, and we got what we got. It is as if we're looking right at things and not seeing them. And I'm beginning to wonder, as I see the numerous disasters facing the new United States, both here and in, in a larger global community where we become a laughingstock. One of my friends who lives in, in, in France uh, said, it looks like the U.S. has become a third world country. I'm beginning to wonder if we have the collective ability to honestly critique ourselves and our common way of life. And if we do that collectively, not bipartisan, but if we do that collectively, I think we will see that even more disaster has been coming in our direction for a long time. And we will discover, and this is what makes the seeing of it so difficult, that we have not only relied on unrealistic fantasies about who we are, but also we have depended on gross injustices to maintain a way of life for a minority at the expense of the majority. And the desire that we have for things to get back to normal is not only something that's not going to happen, it's something that should not happen. It is a fact. It is a fact that we as a nation have not paid attention to the consequences of systemic racism for ages. And my prayer for all of us is that we wake up. Life is short. Our breaths are numbered. May we rest in clear seeing. And as I'm saying that, I thought of the clip of Van Jones. Mm reacting to the announcement of the outcome of the election. Uh, he was on CNN. I'm sure you can Google it and see it. I've watched it three or four times. And I, I have cried three or four times. I've cried it. every time I've seen mm -hmm. it. He just, he releases an emotion that probably has been held in his body for his entire life, but acutely for the last four years, I think. And to be able to release that, I, I think I said in here not, too long ago that I have seen more black men in powerful positions openly weep in the last seven months than I ever have. And that display of just raw, vulnerable emotion, I, I, we need to pay attention. That's, that's your spiritual assignment yeah. for today. Yeah, it's go good. Look at, go look up that clip. Yeah. 
So to quote uh, Viktor Frankl again in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he writes about uh, the stages a prisoner would go through in the concentration camps. Upon arriving, there would be this shock, despair, grief, this kind of disbelief of where they are and what's happening. But rather quickly, and likely as a self-preservation tactic, they fell into apathy, um, what, when he, what he calls a kind of emotional death. He would write about how at first you would watch the bodies, the dead bodies being carted off and be filled with emotion. And then after a couple of weeks of that, you're looking at the dead body and wondering, can I have those clothes? So this apathy was characterized by having abnormal reactions to abnormal situations. It's not normal to see a dead body going by us and wondering, can I have their clothes? It's normal to have grief about the dead body. So I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but we have normalized a kind of indifference to some very not normal behaviors kids separated from their parents and in cells, appealing an order that supplies food to the most vulnerable Americans during a pandemic. A president who tweets, I love Texas, after supporters surround and run an opposition campaign bus off the road. This is not normal. These facts pain me, and yet we have looked the other way in many ways. I may, I definitely read this election differently than some of you, and I would like to hear your experience. I believe we need to stay in the room together, even when it's hard. And I'd also like to say this in as nonpartisan of a way as possible. And as I say it, I have in mind people I love and cherish, some who have never felt like they belong to America, and some who distinctly don't feel like they belong to this America. This election was a moral aptitude test, and I think we failed. And by we, what I mean are the large majority of white voters. I know this makes some of us uncomfortable, but we gotta kinda sit with that. According to New York Times exit polls, it shook down about like this. 58% of white men voted for Trump, 40% of white men voted for Biden. 55% of white women voted for Trump, 43% of white women voted for Biden. Roughly 75% of non-white and LGBTQIA folks voted against Trump and Trumpism, what Bill called Trumpism. Votes are often private. Some of us don't ever tell anyone who we voted for, and that's fine. But these numbers make a public statement. We should grapple with what they tell us. White America has different goals and ideas about leadership than all other groups. The percentages are actually not that different from the last 10 or so elections. I looked it up a couple days ago. But this one, for me, in my opinion, felt like there was something deeper at stake. And we didn't take a strong enough stand. Most white folks voted for someone who showed us every day exactly who he is and what he stands for, and I didn't experience it as kindness, compassion, or inclusion. Some of those voters just looked the other way and voted anyway uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I think this election was in part about a kind of struggle for belonging and identity. And the way that I've tried to understand it, it's about which definition of belonging you believe in. An idea of an America that belongs to you or a place to which you belong. If we as a group or in our lives want to create something approximating the beloved community, um, what will we do to ensure that that happens? What are we willing to give up? Because there is something to give up, but there's also something to gain. 
and what are we willing to see about what we are being exposed to. This is messy and it's hard and it's uncomfortable, but I do think that it's more rewarding, whole, and I would even say indigenous. Mainstream news keeps um, headlining things like a divided America or a nation divided, but I think the numbers say something different to me. America as a whole is not divided. White Americans are divided. And we are voting in a way that indicates we want to keep the power structures working in our favor. We've confused evangelism with a political party, a person for a God, and our politics for principles. We are suffering an identity crisis, putting our hopes in the empire rather than in the people. The split here is an indication that something is broken and we need to tend to it. It's fine if our politics differ. I love many people with whom I disagree politically. And I know some people who voted differently politically this time because of what they were seeing. But when our politics overshadow our commitment to compassion, we've got work to do. Trump is not the cause of all social and racial issues that have been thrown into relief, even recently. But he has added fuel to the fire. And as Bill called it, Trumpism represents a shadow way too long ignored in our country. For instance, this administration has taken measures to remove anti-discrimination trainings and referred to anti-racist teachings as child abuse. He called it anti-American propaganda. This is a throwback to segregation era politics. He didn't start it, but he brought it back into the forefront and we'd like to think we're past that. We must ask ourselves, who does his policy leave out? A whole heck of a lot of Americans, including my husband and kids. We should not try to normalize this. We need to face the history in order to reshape it. For sure, doing the work of being an anti-racist is deeper than a workshop, far bigger than a book group discussion, and longer than an election cycle. It is bigger even than how we voted. It will be solved at the communal level, but if how we vote reflects what we want for our communities, we voted largely in favor of ourselves. Here is a president who is saying racism is not important for us to deal with, when in fact, it's at the very heart of what we need to deal with. It will take a lifelong and likely generations long commitment to examining and learning, being willing to change, and then imagining what the empowered and empowering community can look like, and then representing that in our political systems. I reached out to an old friend this week, a pastor at a United Church of Christ in Charleston, South Carolina. I wanted to know what he was going to say to his congregation today. And where we arrived was in this sort of silence of holding grief for the deep desire for people to feel like they belong, for the confusion about our identity, for the feelings that we seem to be simultaneously seeing this country more and less clearly. History shows us that empires fall, and America has been called an empire. So it will eventually fall, I think, if we cannot create spaces of belonging, if we cannot find ways to love each other a little more whole. Racism has become indigenous to America, as has wealth and inequity, as has individual versus collective freedoms. Many of us say that's not what we want, but here we are and we've got repair work to do. While no single population of people is a monolith, the responsibility of that repair, I think, largely lies in the hands of white folks being shaken awake. 
and those of us who have benefited from generational and systemic privilege. We must work in our own circles. I think there are many of us who attend this class who want to do that work, who are hurting and really want to make things better. Let's go back to Robin Wall Kimmerer's definition of indigenous. Again, to grow the circle of healing to include all of creation. I love that image of growing the circle. So we need to align our policies and our systems with our values. And I'd love to center the value of belonging, not for some, but for all, even those who disagree. So wherever we are post-election, I think we kind of, we gotta show up so that the issues we face in future elections are not reflective of deeper divides, but opportunities for more wholeness. If we choose to listen to that second melody, the one that beats like a slow, steady drum, the one that says we want more peace, more equity, more justice, then those are the things we need to fight for. Whiteness as an idea needs to fall out of love with individualism and manifest destiny and more in love with reciprocity, more in love with each other. You know, Holly, as I listen to you talk about this idea of indigenous, mm -hmm. it makes me think how critically important doing theology is and doing good theology, which means the way I do it. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. Well, it means doing theology that it, that's honest and fits the facts. Yeah. And listening to you talk about the values that grow out of your understanding of indigenous makes me think about sort of where we began in 2018 in Ordinary Life in talking about we've reached this point where we've come to the end of something. What we have relied on no longer works. This happened long before. Mm. Um, George Floyd, but it was still there underneath the surface. And um, what I began to say was, we've come to the end of this understanding of uh, cosmological dualism. It's all a piece. There's no God out there. There's, we're in the mystery and the mystery is in us. But even more importantly, we've come to the end of this emphasis on individual salvation. We're in this together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's critically important for, yeah. for us to see. Um, and, and, you know, I will also want to say, and I, I think I got this line from Richard Rohr. We can critique something really only, because, only from the inside. And because we, we can critique, critique something because we're proud of it, because we care about it. Mm. And I can say these things both about my country and about my religion that shaped me. I want to see my country and I want to see my church survive. Um, I wish the Methodist Church were not caught up in this petty struggle about full inclusion of all people. That just makes no sense to me. But I want I want, our, I want us not only to survive, I want us to thrive. Mm -hmm. And where this surviving and thriving is possible, what makes it possible is learning to see from the heart. I found a graphic this week I want to show you. You either see God in all or you don't see God at all. 
We've got to discover that we are members of each other. I learned this in Sunday school growing up. Brown and yellow, black and white, we are precious in their sight. Mm -hmm. That, we didn't really mean it. Mm. Not by practice, we meant it as an idea. Now we have to believe it as a practice. We have to put this belief into practice. It means that we have to embrace the conflicts that, em that engulf us and see them as doors through which we can walk into a new life for all of us. Not only for individuals, that's important, but as a nation, as groups within a nation. Uh, as I said in the beginning of this talk today, we do it with realism in one hand and hope in the other. Realism requires that we look calmly and honestly at the hard realities of our world. Racism, poverty, criminal injustice systems, inadequate health care delivery systems, and so forth and so on. These things can crush our spirits if we don't also hold on to the hope that we, are, that we can do better. We can do better than we are doing. We're better people than our circumstances show. Are we faithful to all of us? Are we faithful to the God in all of us? In this current time, there is a call from the depths, that's from the Psalms. There's a call from the depths to us that once again, we firmly commit ourselves to and engage in doing justice, loving mercy, and calling the community of empowerment into being. I've wondered sometimes if our ideas precede our behaviors. Oh, yeah. You know, like we've been talking about the idea of what Jesus meant by the empowered community for 2,000 years, roughly. <laughs> and it preceded him, even. We've been talking about and reshaping the idea of democracy in this country for at least 200 some odd years, 300 years. Um, and so I, I love this idea that both religion, uh, democracy, social systems are in constant evolution. Uh, Bell Hook says that they require constant reformation and constant evolution or constant revolution. And I, I, I think that's so true. You know, something isn't stagnant and then we fill in the pieces. It, 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 to use um, Thurman's analogy from last week, it's, it's not a swamp. Democracy and religion is not a swamp that water just flows into and stays, right? It's a, it's a river, the river that is ever flowing and ever changing. And I, I think we're somewhere in between those two right now. Uh, so. Wasn't there some political promise about drain the swamp? Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, you're absolutely ah, right. The, the blueprint precedes the building of the house. Mm -hmm. And in the most mystical of all the gospel writings that we have in the Christian collection of scripture, John begins with, in the beginning was the, was the blueprint. We have a blueprint. And we do these engagements in religious and spiritual teachings to get the blueprint out again and look at it and see, are we really building this? Mm -hmm. Are we? <laughs> yeah, I and, mean. And to continue to, to work on, on doing that. I think 
in my neighborhood, when they build a new house, yeah. they bring a bulldozer in and knock the old one down. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that's required. Yeah. And sometimes we have to use the structures of the old house to inform our new house. You know, we can't forget it. We have to use the kind of the ghost of it, I guess, to inform our behaviors. But you know those bracelets that were so popularized for a long time, the WWJD bracelets, the What Would Jesus Do bracelets? Well, I, they honestly, they kind of made me laugh for a long time. But, um, <laughs> but for the first time, I'm actually seriously pondering that bracelet. What would Jesus do right now? I think he would gather up the brokenhearted, the disinherited, those who don't belong, the children without their mothers, the loved ones of those who have died, migrant mothers and mothers of black children, and he would break bread. I think he would ask, where does it hurt? And he would let us grieve. And then he would say in Eugene Peterson's beautifully translated words, let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. I love that. We need to get a little salty <laughs> to bring out all the flavors and get back to work for the beloved community. So today, some of us are mourning, some of us are exhaling, some of us are celebrating, and we got to get back to work so we can fulfill Jesus's vision of a transformed world. This is not just for those of us living today, but for future generations, my children's children's children. This is not, um, or I wonder, I guess, how many people in this class have quilts that have been passed down from grandmothers or great-grandmothers or great-great-grandmothers. These are often precious family heirlooms because someone's hand stitched them together. This is what uh, I want to pass to my children and my children's children. A quilt that's stitched together by many hands so that they have firmer ground to stand on, something warm to throw over their bodies. This quilt, I hope, will reconcile our stories, have many patches where repair took place, many places where the stitching has been pulled out and redone, frayed edges and jagged threads. It is not a straight line. This quilt can be beautiful because of the way it has been tended, because of the stories it tells, or the quilt can lie in a chest, unused and unseen, where it will eventually get eaten by moths or decay. There are a good number of folks saying, as Langston Hughes penned, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. And he writes in parentheses, America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love. And again, he writes, it never was America to me. But can we, as he writes, as he closes this poem, swear this oath that America will be? I love the idea of creating something around the beloved community where everyone has a sense of belonging. How do we reconcile these two narratives? Let it be what it used to be, it never was to me. There are those who experience the dream and those who never have but keep on showing up for, to fight for it. We saw that in the huge voter turnout across black communities this year. Despite continued voter suppression, they were activated. We see that in the community organizers who work tirelessly day in and day out on behalf of their neighbors during COVID. 
If we say we care about the historically oppressed and the disenfranchised, the poor, people of color, LGBTQIA, then we must be willing to show up for them when it comes to policy. Those who hold the power can change the powers that be. We must be willing to challenge the systems that do not privilege those who have been left out. It is clear that their votes overwhelmingly indicated a desire for something different, and I believe we should listen. It is, as we said last week, about seeing. The whole of life lies in this verb, learning to see the other, learning to see the within of every single being. The work lies in doing empathy and doing the hard work of love and in growing up. I always think about what James Baldwin wrote about love being a struggle, love ultimately being about growing up. If these are our values, if this is what we say we want, then we can begin to change our systems to reflect those values. I was in a conversation with my friend Latanya Flicks the other day, and she said, do we want to build ecosystems or ecosystems? In other words, do we want to build systems out of love or systems out of fear? I love that quote. Yeah. That's great. So um, I, I began today by, by using the words of uh, Pico Auler. I want to put hope and realism into the same sentence. I want to put hope and realism into the same sentence. I want to see the world as it really is, but I don't want to give up on a sense of possibility. Holly and I have talked in here uh, repeatedly about how clear seeing is the essence of the spiritual journey, recovery of sight, healing for blindness. And what carries us forward after we see what is, because looking at what is can be, as Holly has said today, hard and messy. What carries us forward is love. The love I have in mind is the love that we find expressed um, and, and given uh, manifestation in the teachings and behavior of Jesus. And one of the way, things that Jesus taught was that in order to enter the community of empowerment, we needed to become like children. One of the things that a lot of people are not aware of is that Jesus never said what that, what, what that meant. He never said what he meant by that. So uh, theologians and preachers have been hypothesizing for years about what that meant. Uh, I've said that I think it means, one of the meanings is that it means that children are radically dependent on parents for survival, for care, for nurture, for that sort of thing. Um, Another thing that, that it means, I think, um, is being able to see things that others cannot see. I mean, children can see a broomstick as a magical spaceship and a refrigerator <laughs> box as something that will take them to the moon. They, can, they see possibilities that, that we don't see. There's a children's book called, um, I think it's called Your Big Cardboard Box and it goes through a day of a little boy playing with this cardboard box and he goes from being a pirate to a astronaut to a, uh, an explorer to, I mean, it's just this beautiful book and then he falls asleep inside the cardboard box. That's a great yeah. story. We have a comic strip, Red Rover, mm -hmm. and the character in Red Rover, a little boy with his dog, uh, 
he frequently takes a cardboard box to the moon. Freaking so love cool. cardboard boxes still. That, re <laughs> that reminds me of the uh, one of the favorite teachings from Buddhism. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. And one of the problems, it can be mine for sure, is that we think we know. We think we have the answers. And my admonition to you is don't take our word for any of this that we say. Mm -hmm. Go study it yourself. Look to see what's truly true. And then in alignment with whatever values, I hope they would be the values of Jesus, try to bring your life into alignment with that. Use your own, trust your own judgment about this. We need beginner's mind. We need to see many possibilities. We need the faith and create, creativity to see the hidden reality of sacred mystery lurking where most of us would never dare look or even think to look. Most likely everyone in America, perhaps even around the world, in those who have looked to America as a model of what's possible, as a leader, as a protector, uh, most likely right now, most Americans are experiencing some combination of fear, sadness, anger, hope, possibility. I think that's true no matter who you voted for. What does Jesus have to say to us? A lot. Jesus has a lot to say about realism. Jesus has a lot to say about hope. What's real is sometimes very upsetting. Truth, however, is nourishing. There is a teaching from the Gospel of Thomas. Actually, it's the second one in the collection of the 144 teachings, 14 teachings. I forget now. Maybe I should teach a series That's on a Gospel. That's a good idea. Could take you a year or so. Yeah. At least we'd know where we were going. <laughs> Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel and will come to rest. You find echoes of that in um, the fifth chapter of Matthew, which we're going to continue plowing through as we go forward. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Uh, this is a more original saying. This is an earlier saying in the database of Jesus' sayings. I think this is the process in this verse right here of spiritual discovery and spiritual growth. Wise, useful spiritual teachings are meant to disturb us. They're meant to unsettle our assumptions. They are intended to provoke inquiry and exploration. We all have to ask ourselves, what is true in the outer world that I am not seeing for whatever reason? An example that we continue using in here has to do with the unveiling of systemic racism that's been woven into this country's identity since before its founding and the genocide. And these things are not, these are not easy to see. I don't know about you, but I have considered myself to be pretty woke about matters of racial injustice. Can I use that word? Sure, you just did. 
I mean, after all, I got involved in um, the path that led me to right here by getting involved in the civil rights movement in the late 50s in Tennessee. Mm. I thought I saw. Mm. Since the murder of George Floyd, I've seen things I had not seen before. In watching the Van Jones clip, I saw things I had not seen. Yeah. So I'm still learning. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's, that is all of life, is in keeping your eyes open and being willing to see. I heard someone say, um, oftentimes, um, white Americans tend to look at things from like the past and say, well, the past was so terrible and haven't we gotten so much better? And that those who have been historically disenfranchised tend to look at the present and say, but we still have so far to go. Well, because I've learned things about my own inherited racism that I had not seen, I am committed to continue working on being disturbed as long as I can so that I can marvel and so that I can come to rest. During the confusing time following the election and before we knew the outcome, I had an image that came to me as I was either waking up or going to sleep, one of those twilight zone mm -hmm. kind of things. And it was while we were working, Holly and I, in conversation on, on this very class today. And the image that came to mind was we need heart surgery. and We as a country need heart surgery. And the image that I had was a real one. Uh, it is a real one. In, in a series of rabbit punches I did not see coming, I ended up lying on a hospital bed following a heart catheterization, and the cardiologist who did this procedure had just walked up to my bedside, and he looked down to me at me and he said, you need heart surgery. There was no warm-up to it, like... <laughs> How's your day going? <laughs> or, and then he didn't leave by saying, having a nice, have a nice day. He just said, you need heart surgery. And my startled response was, when? And he said, I've got, a, I've got a surgeon on the way. Now, I suppose I could have fired him <laughs> <laughs> because like I didn't like what maybe. he told me. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on yeah. these days. Yes, yep. Um, but I didn't do that. I had the heart surgery. It saved my life. And I asked him sometime later, and this is a man I, over a 10-year period I came to love a, a lot. Mm. Um, I asked him, what would have happened if I had not had the heart surgery? And he said, who knows when, but you had a condition that we call a widowmaker. Now, I want you to know that having heart surgery is life-saving, and I also want you to know that recovering from heart surgery is incredibly painful. And it requires a lot of rehabilitation. You have to learn to walk all over again. You have to cough and it really, really, really hurts. But we need heart surgery. We have to figure out ways to open our hearts and mend our hurts. I thought maybe if we had a Nelson Mandela, maybe if we had a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, or process, like in South Africa, that would help us move forward, but we don't have that. But we have to figure out a way to live together with realism 
and with hope and with hope and with realism. And if we can't figure that out, we're going to keep getting what we got and that can't help us. We've got to live with people we agree with. We've got to live with people that we disagree with. We've got to live with people who are like us. We've got to live with people who are different from us. We've got to learn to see the face of God in everyone. And we've got to learn to show the face of God to everyone. We have to figure out how is it that we can be so smart and still be so dumb and disconnected. We've got to learn how to carry the realistic, uncomfortable, disturbing truth and a wildly imaginable hope forward together. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And thank you, Holly Hudley, Absolutely. for your input today. See you.